Hey, it's Paul here again. Just a quick reminder that today's episode is one of our very first episodes that we recorded and released, and it's before we started using immersive storytelling techniques like sound design and music and narration. Now, of course, the story itself is very powerful and very relevant to today, but if you enjoy those types of elements like sound design and narration and music, then make sure to listen to some of our newer content that we've released as well. And now, on to the show. And I was examining him, and I said, well, you know, he's a newborn, he's got these club feet, what are you doing about that? And she said, you can do something about it? And wow. I told her, your child will run and play soccer like any other Honduran child. And she started to weep, she had no idea. She just lived out in the jungle, she thought that her kid was going to be crippled. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Capel. Real people telling true stories about God's compelling love working in their lives. You're listening to episode 12 of our podcast, which means that there are only three more episodes left in our season. Crazy, I know. But whether you've been listening along since day one or you're joining us for the first time, we're glad you're here. Today's story comes from Brent Hambrick, a medical physician with an unlikely background and even more unlikely trajectory. Many years ago, God impressed on his heart a burden for missions, which eventually led Brent and his family to some unusual places. I'm blessed to be here today with Brent Hambrick. Can you tell us about maybe your background? Let's just start out with when you were as a kid. Can you describe that for us? I come from a single parent family. We grew up in a trailer park, so I'm trailer trash. Actually, most of everything I did is trash because I put myself through college and grad school through the oil field, and we were called oil field trash. And then whenever I hiked the Appalachian Trail a couple of years ago, we were hiker trash. So I'm just trash, basically. So That's great. I just embraced that title. I grew up in Oklahoma and Kansas. I now live in Texas. And uh, yeah, that's that's my background. Okay, great, great. Tell us about, as a kid growing up in a trailer park, was it you know like a pretty rough environment? Yeah, I think that it gives you a, a different perspective. It makes you appreciate things better. I didn't think it was that bad. It was just that we didn't have everything else that everybody else had. But you can, you know, the, the fun thing about sitting for your grad school exams is that when you sit down and take it, it doesn't matter your height or how wealthy you are. It matters your work ethic and how hard you studied for that exam. And so that's how I got into every medical school I applied to, basically. What was your perspective and relationship with Christ growing up? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, my mom took me to church. And then there's a time where you go to church because your parents take you to church, and then there's a time when you make your faith your own, and that happened with me. And I remember when I was about 15, I really became very committed to Christ. I read through the whole Bible on my own and just made kind of an extra decision and started owning my faith. Yeah. Yeah. So then tell us about medical school. What what led you on the path of going into medicine? As it grew closer to graduation, I thought, you know, I need to get this figured out. And so I got my Bible and my tent and my sleeping bag, and I went out in the woods and said, okay, God, I'm going to fast and pray, read the Bible, and I really, I'm not going to come out until you kind of give me a starting point. And uh, I came out of the woods in my senior year in high school knowing that I was supposed to be a doctor. And so studied really hard and got into medical school and went to the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. And uh, yeah, that's where I studied. And 
I got my degree all the time, uh, especially as I got into residency, I thought that it would be nice to do missions. And even when I was in med school, I did a rotation. Uh, the Reader's Digest International Fund has a, a scholarship program where they'll pay for your expenses to do a rotation abroad if you're a in your last year of medical school or your residency. And so I took advantage of that, and I did a residency in Haiti. And uh, that was an interesting time. I'm dating myself, but that was when the AIDS epidemic was just starting in the United States. Oh, man. And so I got to see a lot of AIDS cases. I got to see typhoid. I got to see a lot of poverty and people that didn't have anything and doing all my consulting in Creole, which is a language I didn't know, so I had to learn a language really quick. And it was a great experience. And that was sort of a seed. Actually, from that time and that experience until the time I was actually able to leave for the missions field, I had to get through residency, and then I had to save my money to be self-funded for missions. So it was another nine or 10 years before I could actually become a full-time missionary. But that was just a good seed that I always kept thinking about, that, yeah, this is something that's doable. And then it was in medical school also that I met my wife. And uh, she was going to Oral Roberts, which I had graduated from, and we had mutual friends that introduced us. I tell everybody that's the only way I could meet a girl was to <laughs> get fixed up on a blind date. Yeah. I also say, boy, I'm never going to go on another blind date after I met her. So I didn't. And uh, so anyway, when I met her on a blind date, she had a Band-Aid on her, on her, and a cubital fossa on her arm there. And I asked her about that, and she told me that she had she had a process that she and some of the girls on her wing would donate blood to give donations to missions. And I thought, wow, you know, she's interested in missions, I'm interested in missions. So anyway, that's kind of the wow. start of a great relationship. And here we are, 30 years later, and 10 kids, and we're expecting our first grandkid this week. So uh, we've gone a lot of missions trips together, done a lot of missions work, and it's been a great ride. You know, I can tell that obviously missions was something that you had been thinking about for quite some time, but what was the moment that you felt God was calling you to be a missionary? It's kind of an interesting passage. You would think it would be the passage where, you know, go ye into all the world and baptize people and that kind of verse, but it wasn't that at all. It was a passage in Luke chapter 12, and it was a parable, and I'm just going to sort of give the parable off the top of my head here. But basically, there was a rich man, and he had a farm, and he produced this overabundant crop. He had built some barns for storage for granaries for his crop, and so he filled those granaries. And then the question that the Lord posed to him, or that was posed to him by the situation was, okay, you've got your granaries full, what do you do with the excess? He could have given it to the poor. He could have given it to the priest for distribution. Instead, he said, I'm going to get my adequate size granaries and tear them down, and I'm going to build bigger granaries so that I can keep everything for myself, and then I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and, and I can just kind of take life easy. And the Bible says that God told him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? That parable taught us a couple of things. And so I sat down with my wife. And the first thing it taught me is 
that, first of all, not everything that God gives us is meant to be spent on ourselves. Yeah. And the second thing was, I think we need as people to define the size of our granaries. I think in the case of this parable, I don't think he begrudged the guy of filling his barn, but I think where he, he had issue with it was when he wanted to tear down the adequate size barn and build bigger barns just so he could keep everything from himself. And we had a real heart-to-heart talk and said, okay, let's define our granaries. In other words, let's define our wealth. The basis is, you know, pray and be intentional about your wealth and, and approach wealth with a stewardship and then save some money so that you can be a blessing to other people. So we defined everything. We also defined the amount of wealth that would be enough that we would say, okay, our barn is full. And then after that, we would stop and we would either give our the rest of our money away, or we would give our time away, which is what you do in exchange for money. You go to job and you work and they give you money. And so you could do one of the two. And, and that would have been okay giving the rest of our money away. But we thought, you know, whenever we get to that enough stage, that full barn stage, why don't we go and do a missions hmm. opportunity or experience or something like that? We didn't know what that would look like really because, you know, we're not missionaries. We're just regular people. She's an elementary education major and I'm a a physician. And so that was kind of our goal and our plan. And so we saved our pennies. And then I could see the line where we were getting to that kind of stop with the full barn thing. And so I started looking into where we were going to go and what this is going to look like because, you know, sort of like the dog that always chases the car. And when you finally catch the car, what do you do with the car if you're a dog? You know, <laughs> most right. dogs just walk away from it. And I wasn't going to walk away from this car. Yeah. So I had to have a plan. I feel. People that are successful in life really have two things. They have um, uh, vision. They have something that God has laid on their heart, but they also have a plan. And so what we needed was a plan. And so we spent time formulating plan. And we tried going through denominations, and it really wasn't a good fit for us. It was like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. I'm not going to mention the denominations, but one denomination insisted that we have a full seminary degree. And I'm like, well, I've had so much grad school. When I finished school, I graduated from the 23rd grade concluding residency. And I thought, <laughs> I'm not up for four more years of just straight education. There was another denomination we looked into, but they wouldn't allow you to be a missionary if you had more than four children. And when we started, we had seven children. I know you guys are thinking... And the question, answer to your questions are, yes, we know what causes it. No, we're not Mormon. No, we're not Catholic. And we just like kids. And so, and you uh, guys homeschool too, right? There we go. We homeschool. Well, when I met my wife, she said that she wanted 12 kids. And I was from a family where it was just my brother and I. We just had two kids. And so uh, I thought she was kidding, actually, until we got <laughs> married. And then she said, remember, I talked to you about this. I want 12 kids. So... Tell everybody I wanted two and she wanted 12, so we compromised and had 10. So anyway, that's where we stand. <laughs> anyway, we didn't fit into anybody's box either from a, a, a f- being a graduate from a seminary or our family size that fit into a mainline denomination structure, so we had to be self-funding. You mentioned to me earlier that you prepared for the mission field by going on several different short-term medical mission trips with different medical groups. Can you tell us more about that? In medical school, they never taught me how to be a missionary. They taught me how to do medicine. And so I went on some short-term brigades. There was Feed the Children. There was the Assemblies of God, Healthcare Ministries. There was um, uh, the Christian Medical Dental Society. And so I would go with a variety of people, and I would just sit down on the plane next to the leader, and I'd say, 
you know, that was a great experience. Thanks for having me along. And, you know, how do you decide per thousand people that come how many pills of each medicine that you need? And the guys would say, oh, we've been doing this for years. I have all those numbers worked out. And I said, could you give me that information? And this was just what I needed to know. You know, how do you do that? And I would say, where do you order it? And they'd say, oh, we have this place in Europe, in Amsterdam, and uh, they showed me how to do that, and I was getting all this information I needed to do what I needed to do. Yeah. And so whenever I got to where my barn was full, I had all this knowledge, and so I, we left. Yeah. So where did you begin? In the short-term trips, I had met a Christian community in Honduras, and they were a group of Christians that were meeting in the medical school, and they were just having a Bible studies, and they would evangelize the other medical students. Every now and then they would throw, at their meetings in the Bible studies, they would throw in 50 cents or the U.S. equivalent of 50 cents each, and once they got enough money, they would go out and have a medical brigade. Hmm. And so I said, okay, well, they don't have anybody, and I don't have anybody to work with, so we'll work together. And I just, I sat at their feet and I said, you guys tell me what, if you had unlimited resources, what would you like to do? And they said, well, we're only able to get enough money together to do two medical outreaches. And what they would do is they would have doctors and nurses, and they would go out and they would treat people in villages that didn't have doctors. And they would bring along local pastor and they would preach themselves. And so they'd have evangelism and they would treat people that didn't have access to health care. And it was a great combination. And I said, okay, I'll go ahead and fund that because I knew where to get cheap medicines. I made a big order of medicines from Europe and it came in and boom, they had enough resources to tr do 12 brigades a year, one month, one a month. There were a lot of people doing this medical helps. There was the Southern Baptist and Symbols of God and this organization and that organization. And then there was one that were flying in to Honduras. And I would say, hey, I'm already here on the ground and I'm a physician. Do you mind if I tag along? Do you need another doctor? And even though in the ivory towers, in the, in the headquarters of these denominations, I didn't seem to be a good fit, on the ground, there was a huge need for doctors to treat patients and to help with these evangelical medical dental brigades. And so I found myself being very busy. And then uh, I started importing medicine. Also, I, I helped the Christian Medical Society of Honduras. It's called La Asociación Cristiana Médicos en Honduras. It's the ACME is kind of the pseudonym for it. And it's basically the Christian Medical Society of Honduras. But yeah. we took them from just kind of a Bible study group to where they're actually going out and doing brigades and doing evangelism with their skills. From that first year of funding, uh, 1,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ who would have not otherwise. Wow. And I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, I've never done anything in my life that's had that profound of a spiritual impact on a, on a culture. I think instead of one year, I'll just extend it to another year and see how that'll go. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. 
your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing. And their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. And the group kept growing from a small Bible study to a bigger group. And I remember one brigade, I went out and we packed 25 Hondurans in my 15-passenger van. And I said, well, I think I feel called to buy a bus then. We need to go big on this. And so we bought a bus and then we turned around and it kept growing and it went from one brigade a month to multiple brigade. And so we went from not having a thousand people making decisions for faith, but a lot more and doing multiple brigades per month and then having different teams do it because we had so many people coming to know the Lord through the group. And um, one time by the time I had left, I just was on the bus and I said, raise your hand if you came to faith in the medical school through ACME. If one of the medical students invited you to ACME, you went to the Bible study and you, you came to faith there and half of the hands on the bus went up. 
50% were coming to know Christ through this medical student organization, and then they were going out and being domestic missionaries after they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. And so it was like this movement of Christian physicians that was growing in Honduras. So the second year I stayed, and some guy said, you know, there's a Bible study over in the dental school. And I said, well, I'm not a dentist, but I'll meet them. And so I met them, and they're really enthusiastic about Christianity and Christ and winning people to the Lord. And I just said the same thing. I sat at their feet and said, what do you guys need? What is your dream? What is your vision? Because if you can combine a vision with a plan and fund it, you're going places. Yeah. So they had the idea that they would have enough hand tools to do have 15 people doing extraction simultaneously and then three portable drill units with drill, air, water, suction so that they could have three people doing fillings. And we did that in the first year. They had a similar result. Around another 1,000 people came to faith through what they started. Wow. And so after two years now, we're having 2,000 people come to faith through the stuff that I'm involved with, not that I'm doing because it's them doing it. And after a while, they said, you know, Dr. Hamburg, you really need to be sitting on my board. And I said... I absolutely refuse to sit on any of your boards, and I refuse any title from you except the humble servant of Jesus Christ. And so that was my role. The old model of missions would be a missionary would go into the third world, and he would start evangelizing the nationals, and he would build a church with funds from the United States, and then he would preach, and he would spend 80 hours a week involved in his career being a missionary, and his children would be neglected, and his wife would be neglected, and he would go back to the United States with his family in tatters, and when he left his work, the doors to the church would shut because it never became something that was nationalized. And yeah. from the start, I knew that that wasn't going to be what I wanted to do, and my philosophy was, I don't want to start anything on the mission field that's not going to continue beyond my days here. When If it's one year or if it's eight years, I want it to keep going. And in the middle, I took a year off because after four years, I thought, well, I need to go back and the grandparents need to see their grandkids. And uh, yeah, we need to do that. Ultimately, I had to start an NGO because I was having these groups come down and I was buying medicines and like lots of medicine. Yeah. Now I import five metric tons of medicine a year into oh Central goodness. America to see these 40,000 people. It doesn't have it on its own. It's like this monster I created, I have to keep feeding. But I was, I was, people were sending me money and I was buying hotels and, you know, transportation and medicines. And a friend of mine who's an accountant said, Brent, you better get a, a 501c3 or I'm going to have to start a prison ministry to visit you. The IRS <laughs> is going to credit you as that as income. So I had to start something. It's called Med Missions. And I'm not here to promote Med Missions. It's just if you give a donation or anyone gives a donation to Med Missions, that that's the way that um, you can bless the nationals in Honduras and the other countries that we've started these things in. Yeah, And I tell people, you know, I may not be the best missionary. I'm like the fingernail in the body of Christ. I just kind of, I go out and I see, okay, everything is there set in place. They just, if all they need is money and guidance and direction, then I can throw money at it. It's not a problem. You know, I, I spent all this time saving my money after I got my barn full. And so I have resources. I can do that.
I went on this speaking tour around the medical schools and dental schools, and in one year, I spoke at over 50 medical and dental schools and just encouraged them and gave my testimony and, hey, I'm a doctor, and you can do this. I know you don't feel like a missionary, neither did I, and nobody wanted me at first, but hey, the Lord can really use you. And uh, it kept growing, and the dental park kept growing, and on one of the brigade, we had over 50 dentists and dental students repairing teeth simultaneously. Yeah. I, I would like get them going and they would work with these other denominations and kind of farm them out because we had way too many people, it ended up. And uh, so the kingdom of God just kept growing like that. And I just kept asking them, hey, what do you need? And tell me, I'm your humble servant. And, and we would also do the Jesus film, you know, show the yeah. Jesus film. So they say, okay, this is a pre-Christian place. They've never had evangelical Christianity. So we would work all during the day. And I remember the first time was in a place called Eskimai, Honduras. They had no electricity at all. So we have to have a little quiet Honda generator. And it was, we had this on loan, this janky reel-to-reel projection. And now they have these, you know, data projectors and a screen, yeah. but they would, there was an organization who would lend it out to people, but the last people that borrowed it, they didn't attach the cord. And so you have this metal frame and then there's a, a trapeze that's uh, held together with some lashing and they didn't put the lashing. And so we had this white screen and the metal trapeze but we couldn't show the Jesus film. And so the Hondurans kicked into third world mode and they said, okay, everybody, take your shoestrings out of your shoes. I need everybody's shoestrings. So we all <laughs> took our shoestrings out and we tethered the screen to this metal frame and then we showed the Jesus film. And, then, and then later we kind of shuffled around with our shoes without shoestrings on and, uh, and you know shared the Lord with people after they saw the life of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people came to know the Lord and then we broke down the the frame and the screen. Everybody tried to find their shoestrings and put their <laughs> shoestrings back in their shoes. But Wow. Okay, so, so tell us another unique situation that you eventually found yourself in as a medical missionary. We went into places, and as, as they grew, you know, I was there for eight years, and so they would get through medical school, and they would go out, and they would work in communities. They would become directors of hospitals. The, the medical students. The medical students with. that I had trained, and oh. I'm like... Okay, you know, when you're in ACME, the, the Christian Medical Society, the only way you can get out is to die. Just because you graduate, you're still one of us. We want you to go out there, and we want you to invite you to your community. And so there was one guy that uh, was a director of a hospital, and it was at the, the, the head of a river that goes into the Muskicha. Basically, they have no roads there. You have to go by a dugout canoe or you have to fly in by helicopter or light plane. Wow. And so we would go into these places, and now that he's the director, I have access to all the immunizations for free of the government. Wow. And so I say, okay, here's the deal. You, you have been commissioned by the government to go out and immunize these people. I got medicines. Let's get a canoe. Let's get a bunch of guys. We'll go down the river, and they put these little... 40-horse Yamaha motors on these dugout canoes. They call them tuk-tuks because they go tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk-tuk down the river. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can count the crocodiles as you go down the river, but we would go hours down this river to people that sometimes the tribes didn't even speak Spanish, and wow. we would get translators to to translate from their native tongues into Spanish, and we would, again, show the Jesus film, give the gospel. We would immunize the population. We would treat them, some of who had not been treated. We would come across children that had clubfoot which is where your club inputs. And the mother came to him and came to me one time, I remember, and she said, you know, well, he's got a cold. And I was examining him. I said, well, you know, he's a newborn. He's got these club feet. 
uh, what are you doing about that? And she said, you can do something about it? And I said, yeah, in her mind, she thought that her child was just going to be a handicap, unable to walk for the rest of his life. And I said, no, 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 no. We're going to get him to an orthopedic surgeon. It's If you get him when they're young like that, you can do a heel cord lengthening procedure. And he has to have serially casting of his feet. But I've got guys in the Capitol that can do this. And we have doctors that can write references that gets them past all the nonsense of red tape in the government system right into the specialist. And they know the specialist, and they'll give them a handwritten note that is their ticket to get care. And I told her, your child will run and play soccer like any other Honduran child. And she started to weep. She had no idea. She just lived out in the jungle. She thought that her kid was going to be crippled. And it's that sort of goodwill that you can pass to people that they're very open because you're their best friend now. Yeah. I mean, you've changed their little baby from someone who's going to be a lifelong cripple to someone who's going to be a, have a normal childhood and can walk and run and hold a job and have a family. Yeah. And they're very open to the gospel and you've extended such kindness to them. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is, is I realized the Lord's will, you know, sometimes you see the Lord's will looking backwards a lot than, more better than you do forwards. You just have to take that Abrahamic thing where you're like, Canaan, I don't know where it is. I'm just going to walk. It's probably that direction. I'm just going to start walking there. And so you start walking and you look back and you see the Lord's hand guiding you the whole way yeah. and guiding your steps. And so we look back and I thought, you know, had I, I gotten on with one of the mainline denominations, I would have been their boy, and I couldn't work with anybody else, especially this non-denominational organization that ended up being such an effective evangelical tool and keeps going even after I'm gone. And that's the trick of being a missionary is what remains whenever you're gone? Yeah. And all I need to do is give them medicines, and I import this five metric tons of medicine from Europe every year, and they go out and they do their brigades, and uh, North Americans still love to go down and have brigades with them. Well, since then, we've expanded. We started in Honduras. We started a Christian Medical Dental Society in Haiti, in Salvador. In the, they have a Christian medical dental school in Salvador. It's a wonderful thing. We got them going. We got, got bought them a bus. We bought them all the equipment they need, and now they're going out and monthly having outreach, too. And, and when did you start the one in El Salvador? Oh, it was about seven years ago. Seven years ago. And it's ago. still going, too. Yeah. And then this last furlough, I think everybody needs to take a sabbatical year because with the Sabbath, you develop that vision, and you have time to make a plan. This last sabbatical, we hiked the Appalachian Trail. My five youngest kids, my wife and I, took on this 2,189-mile footpath. And and did you do it in one one go? One go. We, we, we started school early in July. We finished in March, and we started in March. We started in Georgia, and you walk all the way to Maine with your house and your bed and all your food on your back. And my youngest kid was nine years old. And uh, we hiked all the way, and by the time we got in shape, we were doing averaging 17 to 20 miles a day. Big days, we'd go 25 miles. Wow. We'd, we'd hike six days a week, take a Sabbath off every week. And it's amazing the people you meet that are pre-Christian, and we would just be ourselves and, you know, we'd, you know, stay at these, you know, these shelters. We'd fix all this food, and then they'd come in tired from their hike, and I'm like, hey, my kids didn't eat their meals. Can I, can I feed you this stuff? And they're like... 
oh my gosh, I love you. And so you got an automatic friend. And so we made so many friends of pre-Christian people. And that's the deal is getting the gospel into places that it doesn't go. And I never, I just wanted, it was just something I thought would be cool to do. Wouldn't it be epic? I love how you had this missionary outlook, even when you're in the middle of nowhere uh, on a family vacation. That is just so cool. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. The thing that I want to communicate is that you don't need a denomination or another person to tell you you're a missionary. When you feel the Lord wanting you to do something, just do it. I tell you what, whenever we were in Guatemala, an interesting thing happened. The Obama administration opened relations to Cuba. Me being the crazy man of faith missionary nuthead that I am, I said to my daughter Lizzie, I said, why don't we cop a plane and zip over to Cuba? Yeah. Because this last week, the Obama administration, we're not even breaking the law. And so we just showed up. Yeah. And uh, I knew some, I now knew some uh, Christians there and they, uh, Cuba invites people from Central America to do residencies, and they'll do their residencies in Cuba. And the physicians in Cuba are very bright, and it's a very sought-after thing to do a residency in Cuba. For one thing, it's free. They provide all your materials and your books, and the education system in the Cuba, they're very bright people, the Cubans. Hmm. And so uh, they knew a pastor there, and, and so I had a pastor name. 
and he was in Habana. So Lizzie and I, we buy plane tickets, we go to Habana. And so I was just, I sat at his feet and said, what do you guys need? And that's the way you're going to really change the world is sit at the nationals feet and just say, what do you guys need? What, what's the Lord? What is your vision? Yeah. Let's get a plan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because when you get vision and plan, you go places. Yeah. It's like a rocket ship. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, his, he, he like was having these people coming to know the Lord whenever the Soviet Union fell apart in 92, Cuba had hard times. They lost their funder, their backer financially, and communism fell apart. They had to change the communism, the constitution of Cuba from being an atheist state to a, uh, a secular state. And that allowed the church to start doing evangelism and doing a lot of stuff that you get thrown in jail for before. So, you know, by the time I showed up, there was a million Christians and the church was getting bolder and uh, the social mores against Christianity were falling all over the place. And you're talking about evangelical Christianity. Evangelical yeah. Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you wake up and the still the Cuban government's pretty standoffish with the church. They won't give anybody a building permit. And they're the only ones that own the cement factories and the rebar factories. And so these guys, they have to build pastoral houses. And in the pastoral house, they put a partition. One side's a pastoral house and another side's the church. And so they have these casa cultos, these church houses. Yeah. And they can't put a sign over it that's the church, but everybody knows in the community that it's the church. So... They're building these churches, but they don't have enough places to put all the Christians that are coming out of the they're coming out of the Lord. Of an island of about eleven million people, they have over a million Christians now. So wow. I was like, wow, the indigenous church is doing great. You guys need some help? He's like, we've got a ton of people that don't have Bibles, and that's sad. They have to come to church and borrow a Bible. They don't have their own personal Bible. And so wow. I go down to the Sociedad Biblica and we buy Bibles, bought hundreds of Bibles, and say, there you go. I want everybody in your denomination to have a Bible. And when somebody comes to know the Lord, I want you to put this full Spanish Bible into their hand. It really blessed them. So I was just asking, like, okay, now how's it work? How are you building Christianity? So they would have people coming... Uh, into Christianity, and they would send them out as missionaries because Christianity was illegal for 60 years, right? Yeah. That's a long time. A lot of cities have grown up, and there's no old church there. Even a Catholic church, there's nothing there. And so they would be, their bases in Habana. People would be called to be pastors. They would train them. They have their own little seminary kind of thing, or Bible school at least. And they would send them out to be a pastor out there, and then they have to get a missions church. Well, these pastors that are starting a church out there, and then they have a missions church, you know, to open up a new work, they would be walking sometimes four or five kilometers to have their second church turn just by foot. They didn't have a car. You know, there's wow. not a lot of cars in Cuba. The government prevents it. So I went in Havana and I just started buying bicycles. I bought all the bicycles I could find and, you know, extra tubes and a pump and a chain to lock it up so it wouldn't get stolen. And now these pastors, you know, we speed in the gospel around. They got wow. bicycles to go. Yeah. But you never know until you show up. And the yeah. reason I do this is because he is worthy. Yeah. That's the reason you do it, because he is worthy. Yeah, amen. Thanks for sharing everything that you've shared so far. Um, I think one of the statements that you've made is this recurring statement, which is that uh, go to some place and sit at their feet and ask, like, "Hey, what do you guys need?" You know, um, what's what's one if if there was one takeaway that you had for the audience beyond just that, what what would that be? 
If you feel led to be a missionary, don't be afraid about it. Don't be afraid to take that first step. And that's the first step. And the first step may be just saving money, living modestly, defining the size of your barn with your wife and saying, we're going to live modestly. We're going to live in this box. Once our barn's full, we're going to do it. And it may never happen, but if it does, honor God with that and plug into somewhere that can use your gifts and talents. And don't worry about... If you're a certified missionary, yeah, the only guy that certified Moses and Noah and all of the other guys uh, that led Israel was God. Yeah, if God leads you to do something, that's all you need. Don't worry about a church denomination or something. Don't be discouraged. And whenever uh, God called the people of God to do something great, like crossing over to the Canaan. Uh, to take the promised land, to fight the Amalekites. He had this one battle cry, and that was, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And fear keeps you from ever starting. Oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, my family could get hurt, whatever. You're afraid, and so you never start. And then the thing that makes people stop before the Lord's work is finished is discouragement. You go, and it's hard. My first month in Honduras, I got robbed by the police three times, held up for bribes. And wow. I thought, I'm not used to getting robbed by the police. I'm going to go back home. But I didn't get discouraged. He kept going in there. And that, that's how the kingdom of God advances. But I just want to encourage people, there are a lot of missions opportunities out there that all they're waiting for is the fingernail of the body of Christ, and then they're off and running. And I would just encourage everyone to pray about being a missionary and then being, being obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. If people want to learn more about your organization, whether to volunteer or maybe they're an accountant and they want to do something for that, or, or they want to make a donation, where, where can they go? Well, my email, my name, Hambrick, H-A-M-B-R-I-C-K, the number zero, at gmail.com. And you can write me, and uh, you want to come along, you want to build a church. We don't have any builders, but they have welders and masons and carpenters and everybody down there. We need guys to mix mud and just help and encourage the people. And you'll go down and you'll see something, and you'll know where you can fit into the body of Christ and something that you have uniquely to offer. I went down to build a church, and... There was a guy that he was a hobbyist woodmaker, and there was some lattice work that had some missing pieces, and he went off and he was doing some stuff, and he he perfectly cut this lattice, and it looked like it was stock original, and that was just kind of a hobby that he had, but he was part of the body of Christ. I'm like, I could never do that, but yeah. woodworking was his hobby, and he said, yeah, I can make that just great, and so he did, and because he was there, the church was a prettier place. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, everybody's got something that they can contribute to the kingdom of God. And don't leave it to professional Christians. We can't get the gospel out to all 7 billion people if we just rely on pastors and missionaries. It's mathematically impossible. We need everybody to pitch in. And just think about, maybe the full-time missionary gig isn't your jam, but think about, can I donate a year of my life and just see what happens? You'll never yeah. regret it. Yeah. Hambrick0 at gmail.com. That's it. Okay. Brent, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Earlier in our interview, Brent mentioned Abraham, and I think that's a great parallel. Much like Abraham, Brent listened to God's calling, drawing him into the mission field. He didn't know exactly where that calling might lead, but he followed anyways. And it's amazing what God can and will do when we walk in obedience. To learn more about Brent and his missions work, visit medmissions.org or directly send Brent an email at hambrickzero at gmail.com. I know he'd love to hear from you. 
You can also visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, and search for this episode. There, we'll include a link to Med Missions, photos of Brent and his family in action, and a link to Brent's YouTube channel. Right after the music ends, we'll play you a sneak peek from our next episode. But while you wait, you can find other episodes of our podcast at compelledpodcast.com or by subscribing to Compelled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else good podcasts are found. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Like I mentioned earlier, we have only three episodes left in this season. So if you've enjoyed our show, then please share it with some friends and leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Our show was edited by Zach Fowler, a gifted film editor, visual effects artist, and storyteller. You can find Zach and his work at ZachFowlerImagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost, an incredibly talented logo designer. You can reach Josiah and view his work at SiahDesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Billups, a digital developer extraordinaire. You can follow Ben on Instagram at Ben.Billups. Our media intern is Frank Allegria. You can find him on Twitter at TheFrankAllegria. Our assistant producer is none other than my lovely wife, Sarah Hastings. Without her, this podcast wouldn't exist. And that's it for this episode. Up next, a sneak peek at our next episode with Jim Warren, a man lost in this world living a double life as a thief, drug user, and high school counselor. But then when he was 70 years old, God stepped into his life. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll see you next Tuesday. He said, Jimmy, I need to talk to you. He said, I feel like I need to tell you that the night you le- you left to meet your folks in Denver, the rig you were working on exploded, and everybody that you had worked with for two summers were, were killed. You just need to know how lucky you were. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.